Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Margaret Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anna Greta, what a fantastic conversation we had last week coming out of the election as we talked to Helen Sullivan and Sarah Bice about what a change of government is likely to mean for public policy in Australia and also for the role of, of the public service. It was an amazing conversation. Uh, it was wonderful, wasn't it? It was wonderful to speak about optimism and to share new ideas and to to really, I think, be inspired by the idea that change and uh, change is coming, change is happening, and that it really gives us a sense of hope and quite a stark contrast, I think, to the conversations that we'd had at the beginning of the year, thinking about the serious policy challenges and and our our government's failure really to be able to contend with that. I'm thinking about issues like climate change, like climate adaptation, uh, or like extinction, that conversation that we had with Kelly O'Shaughnessy from Australian Conservation Foundation, it, it still haunts me. Uh, and I think the, you know, the contrast with last week's discussion, where we talked with optimism, with hope, and with, with a really extraordinary capacity to share ideas again, to, to really begin to talk about how to do things differently. So it, it was, a, I think, the beginning of, of a, a quite significant fork in the road from a, a policy discussion framework in Australia. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think back over the past year or so, and we've had some very, very powerful conversations. But optimism and hope has often been lacking. And I keep thinking of the comments that Alfredo Sadfilio made around you know, thinking towards the future and the politics of hope and humanity. And when we spoke to Alfredo, in some ways that seemed a long way off, but it's starting to feel very tangible at the moment. And you know, I think that came across so powerfully in the conversation we had with Sarah and, and with Helen. But it's also coming across in conversations that we're just having day to day. I think there is that real sense of hope, which is a wonderful thing. Um, it will be fascinating to see how all of this plays out. And of course, over the next few episodes on Policy Forum Pod, we're going to continue to think through and to talk through what a new government in Australia might mean across a whole range of policy issues. But today, we're looking 
to our immediate region. And this is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to. Mm, absolutely. Uh, look, we're going to start this com- these series of conversations with uh, a topic which I'm sure will be of great interest to all of our listeners, thinking about the relationship between Australia and the Pacific Island states. Over recent years, the very different priorities of Australia and the Pacific Island states have become clearer. While addressing climate change is an absolute priority for the Pacific region, Australia has been disinclined to adopt a sufficiently ambitious policy and has disregarded the concerns of its Pacific neighbours. The position of governments in the Pacific and Australia could not have been more clearly contrasted than at COP26 in Glasgow last year, and we discussed those differences at the time on this pod. The previous government's Pacific step-up was meant to be the centrepiece of Australia's foreign policy in the region, but its unwillingness to act on climate change posed a major problem for regional relations. During the election campaign, the new security arrangement between China and the Solomon Islands further highlighted the distance between Australia and its Pacific neighbours. This may, however, be about to change. Australia's new Foreign Minister Penny Wong said, After a lost decade, we've got a lot of work to do to regain Australia's position as the partner of choice in the Pacific, in a region that's less secure and more contested. So today on the pod, we want to ask what the future might hold for the so-called Pacific step-up. What do Pacific Island nations want to see from the new government on climate change? And how can Australia build deep, lasting bonds with the region? And we have two fabulous guests with us today to discuss these issues. Sharon, would you like to introduce them? I would love to, Anna Greta. And we have two friends of the pod back today. Uh, Firstly, we have Siobhan McDonald. Siobhan is a senior lecturer here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. She's currently chief investigator on an amazing project, a project that's funded by the Australian Research Council's Discovery Project, and that's on climate change and gender in the Pacific, and it's running from 2018 through to 2023. Siobhan is also a climate negotiator for Fiji, and she was previously Vanuatu's lead negotiator at International Forums for Climate Change and Regional Pacific Issues. Her research is primarily focused on applied work in Indigenous Australia and Oceania around the politics of climate change and disaster, land rights and gender. Siobhan, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here again. And we're also delighted to welcome back George Carter. George is a research fellow in geopolitics and regionalism at the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs. George is director of the ANU Pacific Institute, and his research primarily focuses on understanding small states and people's influence in decision-making in international politics. George, lovely to have you back on the pod. Welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me back. It really is great to have you back with us. And it's quite remarkable to think how different this conversation could be to the last time we spoke just before COP26 last year. I'd love to start today's discussion by asking both of you how Australia's change in government has been received in the Pacific region. George, would you like to start? Uh, Thank you very much. It's only been a week, uh, but there's been great optimism uh, with. uh, the return of the Labour government uh, to Australia. In the past week, we've heard um, and also saw in media from not only leaders, but also former leaders, as well as um, NGOs and civil society, this optimism, uh, looking forward to extending this conversation, dialogue with Australia, coming back into the region in terms of climate change. 
Of course, uh, there also have comments in terms of what, how this will be implemented, what will this look like. But overall, uh, great uh, optimism. It was in a meeting in the past week between Australian government officials around climate change negotiations and officials from the Pacific. Uh, and in this meeting, um, first time ever, you know, we have heard and seen uh, Pacific countries engaging with Australia and willingness, especially around the policy announcement of a possible uh, COP chaired by Australia and Pacific Islands. So overall, it's a good time to be in this space on climate change uh, between Australia and Pacific Islands. Siobhan, what are your thoughts? Has the change in government been received well in the region? I, you know, I, I agree with George. I think there has really been um, very clearly signalled optimism. Uh, I think Penny Wong made a very important and strategic decision to enter the region so quickly and um, to message so positively in the language, not, not only of climate change, but in the language that showed she had listened to the repeated requests from Pacific leaders to acknowledge climate change as the greatest security threat to the region. So that's language that has been echoed um, in the Pacific Islands Forum Boy Declaration, but also more recently in the 2019 Kainakilua Declaration as well. So messaging so clearly that the Labor Party came in with that agenda and came in with a with a listening stance, I think, was was a very good way to begin uh, that relationship. One of the things that we've talked about so many times on the pod um, is the importance of listening. And I, I think that's such a, an interesting point, Yvonne, that that seems to be, at least in this, this first week of the new government, a main difference, that willingness to listen, which we didn't see previously. But George, I, I wanted to, to ask you about some of the issues in the region around China's presence. The change of government in Australia has come at a time of increased competition in the region between China and countries like Australia and also the United States. I think all our listeners would be very well aware that the Solomon Islands recently agreed to a security pact with China. And there was then a move by Beijing uh, to take forward a sweeping security and trade agreement with 10 Pacific Island nations. Now, that hasn't gone ahead, at least for now. But, George, could you talk us through the nature of that multilateral agreement and some of the reasons that it hasn't gone ahead at this point? It's one way to engage diplomatically with any country, especially in the Pacific, bilaterally, uh, which China has been pursuing in the last uh, 15 years, uh, especially under Xi Jinping. Is, but also multilaterally. And if for the Pacific, at the core of this multilateral engagement is work through Pacific regionalism, uh, what is known as uh, previously as the Pacific Way that continues on today, or what we now know as the Blue Pacific, uh, engaging with uh, not only leaders, but also uh, Pacific organizations uh, through uh, existing mechanisms like the Pacific Island Forum or through uh, other crop uh, agencies or council of regional organizations in the Pacific. And essential or core in these values of engaging in the Pacific are principles of inclusivity, consensus building, uh, the ability to be transparent, 
but also a willingness not only to be uh, to listen but also to be heard. Now, what we've seen in terms of uh, China's engagement recently, although they have engaged with the Pacific through their own uh, sort of symmetry, where they bring all the leaders together to in Guangzhou or uh, have the leader meeting uh, the Pacific, uh, this. Uh, the proposed uh, multilateral agreement that's now been shelled was an attempt to, uh, I guess, have an alternative to what exists. And what we've seen and heard from the response from the Pacific uh, in terms of leaders like Panuelo of Federated States of Micronesia, recently with Fiamme uh, Naomi, and of course, uh, uh, Prime Minister Panorama of Fiji, is that this is not the right way. This is not the approach. Everyone needs to be consulted give time for these uh, matters, especially of economic and security uh, for island countries to consider. Of course, this will not be the last that uh, we will see from China in the space, but it's certainly a lesson for China to understand what it means to engage in the Pacific uh, through consensus, inclusivity, uh, and that ability to listen and also be seen uh, in the Pacific. So we're back to thinking about how we might listen to Pacific Islands and and their leadership, particularly on on issues of importance to them. And Siobhan, that brings us perhaps to think about climate change. One of the areas where the incoming Australian government has promised to diverge significantly from its predecessor is around action on climate change. Australia's lack of commitment to action on climate has been a major issue in the Pacific for some time now, particularly after the 2019 Pacific Islands Forum, Fijian Prime Minister Frank Baniarama was very outspoken about the sense of betrayal that he felt as a result of Australia's unwillingness to do more, suggesting that it could push Pacific Islands countries closer to China's orbit. Siobhan, how important is climate change to Australia's security relationships more broadly in, in the Pacific region? Yeah, thank you, Anna Greta. Um, I mean, climate change is centrally important and it's centrally important to thinking through the regional architecture. So repeatedly, the Pacific Island Forum uh, leadership at the highest level and the Pacific leadership at the highest level have articulated climate change as the greatest security threat to the region. And so if Australia is going to seriously engage with the region, it must engage on key regional concerns. As we see this kind of geopolitics circling the region, as we see Wang Yi come in and visit the region, we saw the response of leadership, we saw the response of various leaders saying Uh, There was not enough time really to debate such a broad regional framework. We saw uh, a key leader, Prime Minister Fiamme from Samoa, say that that these concerns are better taken back to the Pacific Island Forum. So there's a real link with regional architecture around these sets of conversations and the key concern within that regional architecture is climate change. So there is now a very broad and renewed expectation amongst the Pacific leadership that Australia will come and will start articulating a regional compact around climate change. And what that looks like and what the elements of that are are very serious political commitments in the space. 
So for a long time, the Australian government has had a very discordant climate change position in the region. They have put significant funding into climate change adaptation projects, for example, throughout the region. And yet, in terms of emissions policy, in terms of broader climate change commitments, we know that those have been historically very weak. So what the Pacific Island leadership is now asking for, what the Pacific leadership is calling on the Australian government to do, is come and enter that space as Pacific family, acknowledge this as the key security threat to the region, that this is actually an existential threat to a whole range of countries. And even for other countries, climate change is the greatest security threat. And so while these, you know, while we have these broader geopolitical concerns around military bases, the very pragmatic position of the of the Pacific leadership is that we must address climate change first. So I think that's an excellent spot for us to take a really quick break. Climate change is central to Australia's security relationship in the Pacific region. And I really look forward to exploring this further with both of you in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Siobhan McDonnell and George Carter talking about Australia's diplomacy in the Pacific. Siobhan, before the break, we started to talk about climate change, you know, the priority issue for countries of, of the Pacific Islands, of the Pacific region. And I'm interested in taking this just a little further and hearing what the region might expect from the new Australian government. Can you talk us through what sort of concrete steps Pacific Island countries are likely to want to see from Australia on climate change? And will the new government's commitments up to this point be enough for the region, both diplomatically and ecologically? So obviously a key element of those commitments is around Australia's NDCs, nationally determined contributions, and it's uh, it's very much about asking Australia to do more in terms of global commitments. It's also about looking forward in terms of coal and other carbon-emitting fossil fuels, uh, just transitions. These were all parts of the Kainaki Lua negotiations that happened in Tuvalu in 2019 that Scott Morrison was famously um so frustrated by when he arrived in Tuvalu. It's about loss and damage, creating a framework for ongoing financing of loss and damage, 
in a meaningful sense at a regional level. It's about looking towards broader sets of of ongoing commitments around key climate change markers uh, in the UNFCCC processes, so market and non-market contributions, for example. So it's it's uh, the issues that hit at a very local level in the Pacific, but also that that mark um, the UNFCCC framework. So one of the issues, for example, that Vanuatu will be bringing forward in the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting uh, will be asking for the Pacific Island Forum leadership, which includes Australia and New Zealand, to support the International Court of Justice advisory opinion going forward to look at these broader issues of whether there are, you know, there is actually a causal responsibility for climate change that can be considered in the International Court of Justice. So that's, you know, there are many, many agendas that Pacific leadership want more engagement on. Some of them dovetail very, very closely with security. For example, the issue of maritime boundaries, which is, a, you know, again, very closely linked to these existential threats that are faced by low-lying atoll nations. Some of them are the, that broader human security compact around relocation and resettlement issues, around the ongoing impacts uh, that that countries face as a result of, of climate change that impacts on them so regularly now on annual cycles. George, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on this question of, of what it is that Australia needs to do to meet the expectations of Pacific Island countries, but but also to demonstrate the kind of commitment the Pacific Island countries have been calling for for, for many years now. The policy announcements by Penny Wong uh, in the last week about uh, how Australia will engage with, with the Pacific, especially in the area of climate change, uh, is something to look forward to. Uh, but however, uh, the... You know, it's still yet to be seen how this would look like. What we've seen, uh, there have been many developments uh, in the Pacific and what we've seen uh, beyond uh, what uh, Siobhan mentioned in terms of the focus of Pacific Island nations, especially leading up to UNFCC negotiations, as well as um, other developments in the Pacific, there is much more that needs to be done. So in terms of finance, uh, there is a call by Pacific Islands for um, Australia to re-engage in global financing, uh, so to rejoin uh, the Green Climate Fund. So one of uh, the past, uh, what we can say the good times of Australia's engagement in, in the Pacific when it comes to climate change, it has been, it was the head of the Green Climate Fund, and it worked or spoke uh, and brought up the issues of sits uh, within this funding mechanism. Since then, it has pulled out, and, and that voice of um, being that uh, champion for the Pacific was lost. Uh, Penny Wong talks about being the, a climate leader working with the Pacific, and this is something that's very critical, especially in global uh, international politics in terms of climate change. While we are looking at engage, uh, we are looking forward to how Australia will engage Pacific through adaptation or mediation and its support in this area. Uh, all eyes are on, are on the Labour government and how it pulls together 
some form of consensus or crossing the line and actually implementing these climate promises, uh, which is say it will do in, the, in Australia. But more importantly, uh, what Australia can do is being a climate leader, is being a climate champion with the Pacific in the area of working with the G20 and the major economies. We, uh, the Pacific needs that voice inside these G20 uh, negotiations, dialogues. While it's important that uh, there is a paragraph in these Quad or G20 statements that, you know, that addresses Pacific Islands, we need a country like Australia to be in these conversations that say, yes, we need to do more, or at least bring inside, um, uh, bring on board uh, uh, these island nations in the conversations. Siobhan, you mentioned that New Zealand, like Australia, is a member of the Pacific Islands Forum. And I'm just wondering how New Zealand's role is, is perceived in the region and whether Australia can and should be looking to New Zealand to better understand what our engagement in the region might look like, particularly on issues around climate? Mm, that's a very interesting question. Um, so I, so if we go back to the 2019 Pacific Island Forum, which is the last kind of face-to-face forum that was held, New Zealand was obviously represented at the leadership level by Jacinta Ardern, but below that she had uh, a host of Pacific Island ministers with her at the forum. So the optics of that was very much the Pacific speaking to the Pacific, um, which is something, so this is engaging in that space of Pacific diplomacy or Indigenous diplomacy. And I think that this potentially could be a real strength of Australia's if Australia chooses to use the same strategy. So for many years um, I have spoken internally uh, to, you know, to people in DFAT and just said, uh, at, you know, at the 2019 forum, Australia was represented by Scott Morrison and then Alex Hawke. You know, and that optic looks very different. It looks very Anglo-Australian speaking to the Pacific. And we don't need, Australia does not need to look like that. We have, you know, Indigenous ministers as well. And this Labor government has the first, uh, the first First Nations woman in a portfolio in the history of Australia, which is something that they should be extraordinarily proud of. Um, sending Linda Burney to a Pacific Islands Forum meeting would be game-changing, I think, in these spaces. So New Zealand has historically, at a leadership level, voiced differently to Australia, but in terms of negotiating spaces, New Zealand and Australia are very closely aligned, often uh, in climate change positions. So... I think what we find at a Pacific, you know, at a, in terms of the regional architecture and the way uh, climate change works is that these are, you know, these are complex issues. There are complex just transition issues across, um, across Australia and across New Zealand that really need careful thinking through in terms of broader climate change policy. 
Um, but this optic of what it means to be a Pacific family really means that Australia and New Zealand both need to deeply engage in this space with the Pacific. Um, and the Pacific leadership is waiting for that engagement from Australia. And they are optimistic and hopeful, I think, of that engagement coming from this new government. So um, it's such an extraordinary conversation so far that really ties together some of the conversation that we started on our podcast last week about optimism and hope and change um, with a new government. I'd like to just take a step or two backwards and think about the last decade. The the former Australian government made much of its so-called Pacific step-up policy, but after failures around climate and competition with China, that has been called into question. Just before Foreign Minister Wong left for Fiji, she spoke of Australia's lost decade in the Pacific. I'm wondering whether you both think that that's a fair assessment. And, and if so, how do we make up or recover that ground? George, would you like to start? So the last decade of diplomacy in the Pacific, um, as um, alluded to by uh, the Labour government, has some truth, but we also need to take into account there have been also developments, especially in the step up. There has been increased engagement, of course, especially in the area of uh, security uh, and economic uh, integration. What uh, we see now and where uh, Libra is announcing that it should and is a positive step uh, is in the area of climate change um, and indigenous. To, I guess, elaborate a little bit more on the last point made by um, um, Siobhan in terms of uh, where Indigenous diplomacy can come through. Yes, indeed, of the optics, uh, but it also needs to be systemic. It's not just great to have someone in the meeting of colour. It's important that we have systemic change in Australia uh, that includes also Pacific uh, diaspora or uh, people from the Pacific in these places. Part of this is creating initiatives uh, that allow not only just dialogue between Indigenous peoples, First Australians with uh, the Pacific, but also the wider Australian community, uh, but also initiatives that we see uh, transfer of knowledge, uh, learning, deeper research and engagement on traditional knowledge uh, in Australia, uh, traditional knowledge in the Pacific, in the areas of climate change, but we see that this uh, forms of learning uh, are shared across. Um, it's optics are, are a good way to start, but we need to bring on board all these assets, or which uh, is the social capital that Australia has, uh, which are people, uh, Indigenous people, uh, Pacific peoples in Australia, as well as peoples uh, uh, in the Pacific. So this is an area where uh, we can see beyond the work in the area of uh, security and economic cooperation, but also very much in this area of Indigenous and climate change. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering perhaps about how we build genuinely strong bonds between Australia and, and the Pacific. Does the step up need to be rethought beyond the issues of climate change? I, I think you're really beginning to answer those questions already, but what are the other areas in which Australia should be building deeper relationships with the Pacific? So many of those have been, some of those key areas have been articulated in the Labor Party platform already. 
I w- I'd just like to echo what George has just said, which is that um, he's absolutely right. The Indigenous diplomacy strategy needs to be really carefully thought through. And I wouldn't for one minute want to suggest it's just about optics. It's really about um, a very deep thinking through of what that engagement is about because internal to the Pacific, if it doesn't have that depth around thematic engagement but really thought through from Indigenous knowledge systems and practices, then it won't work. (laughs) It will be seen as tokenistic and that would be the opposite of what I'm sure is intended. But some of the key elements of that that broader platform, and I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that the last 10 years were a lost decade. They were lost in terms of developing a strong climate change agenda, but there is a lot of good work that Australia has done in the Pacific region over that period of time. And too often, I think in the electoral campaign, the Pacific became a bit of a political football between the political parties in ways that I think were help, were unhelpful and ultimately led to some very inflammatory language that was also unhelpful in terms of carefully managing um, regional engagement. So some of those core concerns for the Pacific are things like the seasonal worker program and there's been a whole range of, of parliamentary inquiries that have been taking place that have shown some very significant issues around the operation of that program. But that that remains really a pivotal way of Pacific Islanders creating livelihoods and futures for their families. And so that's a, a very core area of ongoing engagement. Um, obviously, fisheries are a key area of, of ongoing engagement as well. There's a lot of other kind of much more significant areas that I think could really inform that space of Indigenous diplomacy around culture and cultural exchange. And I think they're things that could be expanded on significantly as part of developing an ongoing strategy. And I I think that could be a really fruitful area of, of diplomacy, but also of thinking through what a, a reconfiguration of some of this Pacific, real Pacific family engagement could look like. I agree with Siobhan. Other areas also of critical importance, of course, is COVID. While some may call it the COVID recovery, uh, many Pacific Island states continue to be in lockdown or uh, slowly opening up their borders. Um, and it will um that partnership with Australia, as well as New Zealand, as well as uh, other countries, will remain critical. As economies uh, reopen up, uh, a lot of the countries will be reflecting on whether tourism is has been that um, sector that has provided so much for the Pacific uh, will be assessed. So uh, in terms of recovery, economic recovery after COVID, this will become critical. Health should not be taken away. Pandemics will come and go, but we also have a critical um, health challenge in terms of communicable diseases. Uh, and this is tied in very much with not only uh, resources, supply, 
uh, and service delivery, but also very much the type of supply chains of food that is uh, provided in the Pacific. So I think it's also important that uh, uh, labor also uh, is engaged uh, in this area of COVID uh, recovery for Pacific states. George, I'm also wondering what role you see education is playing and and knowledge exchange and knowledge sharing. You know, there's been a, a long tradition of um, people from the Pacific Islands coming to Australia to study. How do you see that role of education playing out, particularly as we move out of COVID-19 lockdowns? Is, is that going to be critical in the future? Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, education, you know, for the last two, three years, similar experience here in Australia is that many students have been, uh, you know, going to school from home, but it do, uh, for many societies do not have the luxuries of technology uh, that connect students to their schools. So education in terms of uh, primary and secondary, uh, many of uh, Pacific states will have to catch up. And so this is an area that uh, uh, needs that address, but also in terms of greater education or higher education in terms of tertiary, but also capacity building. Uh, we've seen so many times uh, and, and very critical and important uh, students from the Pacific, I myself as one of them, coming over to Australia for uh, education, but as well as, you know, programs like APTC or technical institutes uh, in the Pacific or supporting um, uh, universities as well as research has been critical. What uh, needs to, I guess, uh, in terms as we move forward is uh, what we see of co-partnerships. We need Pacific educators. Uh, we need to see, uh, I, I'd like to see the day where uh, when we are delivering courses on the Pacific that we have both not only great minds from Australia, but also great minds of the Pacific co-teaching. Uh, we, you know, seeing this in terms of capacity building that we provide in the Pacific, we need to empower the skills and the knowledge that's already in the Pacific to learn from themselves or share within, uh, you know, uh, experts from Samoa working in Kiribati or Kiribati working in, um, uh, in Fiji. I think this is uh, something that, uh, we should all uh, look forward to and hopefully not only governments in the Pacific, but here in uh, Australia, we see signals of that, that it's not just about providing education, but also empowering uh, knowledge to be transferred amongst the islands, but also learning here in Australia. Josh, I think what you're describing so powerfully there is the critical role that genuine partnerships are going to play. And I think the the potential for Australia not to just be contributing to education and to learning and knowledge and capacity building in the region, but to genuinely be learning from the region is a really exciting prospect. Um, and so hopefully we do see those kinds of shifts where Australia, with some level of humility, recognises what can be learned from the region. Siobhan, we've we've covered a, a very wide range of issues that the new Australian government needs to be thinking about as it, it builds its relationship with the region. But I wanted to, to come back as we begin to, to draw this, this conversation to a close to this idea of what's been described as, as First Nations foreign policy 
you know, you you talked, Siobhan, about the the power that there would be in Linda Burney leading or being part of a delegation to the region. And George has talked so powerfully about traditional knowledge and the different ways in which we can engage and share and learn. According to Minister Wong, the new government is looking for ways to weave the voices and practices of the world's oldest continuing culture into the way we talk to the world and to weave that into the work of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which I think is just a a fascinating development and a really important one. Siobhan, you pointed to the need for Australia to think very carefully about how this might be done. I wonder if you could just talk us through a little more about how that idea of First Nations foreign policy might impact our relations in the region. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure George has a whole variety of very important contributions to make on this as well, Um, but I'm happy to start. I think this has to be very carefully thought through, Um, and I want to start by telling you a story from my recent past, which is, you know, obviously my background is a long history of working across Indigenous Australia and the Pacific, um, and I've had the honour really of working alongside a whole range of Indigenous leaders and Pacific leaders during that time, and I know how fruitful those engagements can be across those diplomatic spaces. But probably about five years ago, after I finished doing a whole range of very detailed land-related work in Vanuatu and then in the Solomon Islands, I went to see the head of the Indigenous Land Corporation in Australia and I said, look, one of the problems across across Vanuatu and the Solomons is that uh, often the style of development that's taking place is very much, you know, non-Indigenous investors coming in, buying land and then creating a development. There there are not very many joint ventures that are occurring the way we do them all the time in Aboriginal Australia. And the Indigenous Land Corporation were a bit shocked to hear this and they said, look, we're very happy to open up some of those businesses across Australia for Pacific leadership to come and have a look at. And I said, absolutely, let's do it, let's organise it. They worked on an entire plan. We went to DFAT, we asked for funding and DFAT said no. So to me, that, that's the kind of fruitful engagement that could be occurring across those spaces of Indigenous diplomacy. There's incredible Indigenous knowledge to be shared in all kinds of ways. And working from the perspective of listening to the Pacific, working through Indigenous knowledge systems of ways of being, um, not just thinking of Indigenous knowledge systems as something that's locked in the past of 60,000 years ago, but also the very dynamic ways in which Indigenous people are moving through contemporary realities as well. From a Pacific perspective, there are Pacific is a whole range of self-governing territories. Um, we're about to move into a conversation across Australia which is about Indigenous voice and treaty making. There is so much the Indigenous leadership can learn from the Pacific about that space of of self-government, about that space of Indigenous land and control. And these are spaces of Indigenous diplomacy. You know, they really don't need very much, (laughs) very much um, 
around them. They just need a bit of facilitation, but they're incredibly fruitful. So often from the perspective of Indigenous Australia, we look to experiences in New Zealand and in Canada and in America, but there is so much to be learned from the Pacific. And I think opening up those spaces of engagement, those spaces of Indigenous diplomacy. I was involved with the Canadian Embassy organising a trip for the then Minister of Indigenous Affairs, Jody Wilson-Raybould, to Vanuatu to go and visit Vanuatu and to go go down and meet a whole range of um, of Ni Vanuatu in a range of different settings. That was, you know, that was just extraordinary. Um, and it was extraordinary because of the quality of engagement that occurred across a whole range of different areas. So spaces of Indigenous diplomacy can be extraordinary when they're prepared for, when they're thought through carefully, when they engage with Indigenous knowledge systems. They can be so, so very important to the fabric of how Australia wants to be represented in the region with a different voice and a different way of being. It's the opposite of um, the neo-paternalistic critique that um, that Australia sometimes receives. It's starting to look very different. It's starting to enter into those Indigenous diplomacy spaces. And I think what you've mapped out there is so incredibly exciting, not just in terms of the way Australia engages with the region and the world diplomatically, but also for what it means for our own identity um, and and the way we behave um, within our own country. But, George, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. And I'm really interested to hear how First Nations foreign policy might connect with the concept of, of oceanic diplomacy that you've been working on. I agree with um, uh, the comments and uh, made by Siobhan in terms of the potential but also uh, the empowerment factor that comes through, uh, through uh, where a uh, first Australian uh, or Indigenous diplomacy can have an impact on on Australian uh, diplomacy altogether. My understanding in the work that's currently has been done over the last few years uh, within DFAT, and uh, while we're hoping, seeing, waiting on what would that look like under the Labour government is uh, one. It's about uh, increasing. Uh, the number of, of uh, Indigenous diplomats. Uh, secondly, it's about uh, Australia's policy in terms of global uh, Indigenous politics at the UN. And of course, uh, increase, uh, increasing looking at uh, incorporating uh, Indigenous forms of practices uh, within in the work of, um, of foreign affairs, but also uh, in terms of its foreign policy. Yes, uh, there are lessons that uh, we can share and learn from each other. So we have been working on this project on oceanic diplomacy, and it comes in uh, different forms. Uh, one form is learning from history. We are engaged in trying to not only document, but learn from where, uh, not necessarily Pacific states, but what we call political communities of the Pacific across the ocean. Uh, so it's learning from the great civilizations of the Pacific, uh, the Tongan civilization, the Nanmadol civilization of Micronesia, or looking at the work of uh, more recent uh, kingdoms like 
Hawaii Kingdom of uh, 1700s to the 1800s, or looking at uh, engaging or uh, exploring uh, Fijian diplomacy. This is where we uh, find lessons, but also uh, how people did engage or political communities uh, communicated uh, across uh, the ocean. But we're also very interested in how uh, indigenous forms of practices have been incorporated in contemporary uh, diplomacy, where they are parallel. And this is where we have come to a building, con- I mean, a working conclusion that this is where relationship or relational diplomacy comes through. Is that ability, while we, in the Western forms of diplomacy, we tend to uh, interact and engage in what's known as transaction. We're always fascinated by the idea of power, who wins and who loses. Uh, and that is very transactional in our bargaining and negotiations. We understand that because that's the modern form of diplomacy or international politics that we are seeing and engage with. But there's the other aspect of relational diplomacy. And this is uh, what we see is not just cultural diplomacy as um, sharing culture, but where culture is embedded in forms of identity. And we see that in the Pacific. And we hope these are the lessons that we can share for countries like the United States to learn for China, as well as uh, in the Pacific uh, here in Australia, on what relational diplomacy is about. These parallels of um, Western diplomacy forms of diplomacy, but also how we incorporate this uh, in Western diplomacy. So we see this uh, indigenous practices in the way of how we conduct consensus uh, within regional politics or how this is elevated at the UNFCC uh, in terms of the Talanoa dialogue. But what's also important that's coming through from this is the ability for indigenous people to say, wait a minute. This is not how we are supposed to be. We've lost the, the true essence of what Talanoa is. Talanoa is not a facilitated dialogue. Talanoa means open-ended, uh, empathetic learning. So it's also about uh, encouraging diplomatic practices, but making sure that we're using in the right way, that we are safeguarding, uh, that is still true. The meaning is still true to how it's practiced, how it's meant at the local level, but how it also can be used in uh, uh, international politics. So this is part and parcel of this growing project on uh, oceanic diplomacy that brings together thinkers, authors, practitioners from around the Pacific. And hopefully this is something that can also be encouraged here in Australia because that forms of learning comes from First Nations documenting their own uh, history, documenting their own visions uh, and how this uh, should be articulated. And as Siobhan rightly put, it takes time. It's not a three-year term that Labour government can sort of announce at the end that this is what it is, but it should create that environment. It should be building that empowering the people to work in that space and, and, and inform that space so that it is uh, genuine, not only for as the world at Pacific looks to Australia, but how Australia uh, will be uh, utilises that in its in its engagement. What an extraordinary conversation. I think we could speak with the two of you about how much Australia can learn from the Pacific for, for many hours, but we will need to wrap the conversation up shortly. 
I'd love to finish with one piece of advice. Um, we like to ask our guests about the one piece of advice that you'd give to Australian policymakers. And, and in this context, what one thing would you like to see the new Australian government do to, to mend and build those relationships in the Pacific? Siobhan, would you like to start? Yes, thank you. Um, this piece of advice is really for Australians more broadly. Um, Australians need to think of the Pacific region sometimes with much more humility than they do. So there has been um, an explosion in commentary, for example, around the idea that the Pacific leadership saying no to China's regional agreement is somehow a win for Penny Wong. Um, There's a kind of crowing that has been going on by a range of commentators and progressive commentators in particular. And I would just strongly caution against that. I mean, this is very much the Pacific leadership making their own decisions as sovereign countries with a very long and proud tradition of diplomacy that for many hundreds, often thousands of years has engaged with many powerful countries. And the Pacific leadership will continue to create its own agenda. And Australians in general would do well to carefully heed the warning that the Pacific is not Australia's backyard, that these relationships have been built across time but that Australia needs to enter this space with humility and respect and a sense of reciprocity and much more behave in the way of family if that is how it wishes to be treated. So that's my advice. (laughs) Powerful piece of advice, Siobhan. Thank you so much. George, what's your one piece of advice for Australian policymakers? Every time I teach, whether it be through my undergrad classes, postgrad classes, uh, or even uh, working on uh, courses for defense or defense, I always start with this. And hopefully the students do remember, but it's important that the Pacific is diverse. Yes, diverse in terms of culture, language, uh, but also diverse in terms of its approaches to diplomacy. There's a time when Pacific countries come together and under the auspices of regionalism uh, or through negotiations that it does work together as a group, but never ever underestimate uh, uh, this diversity or lose sight of this diversity. It needs nuanced approaches for every country, different leaders. And so uh, this is my piece of advice is always remember that there is uh, diverse actors, uh, diverse states, Uh, and they all have uh, diverse forms of approaches. Very wise advice from you both, listening with humility. Thank you so much, Siobhan and George, for joining us today in a fabulous conversation. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Only Greta, that was such a powerful conversation. There's so much that I will take away from that. We talked about uh, the politics of hope and humanity when we introduced this episode. 
And that's exactly how I'm feeling after that conversation. But I think that that last advice that both Siobhan and George gave about Australia engaging in our region with some humility, understanding what we can learn, not simply what we can teach, and engaging through genuine listening and relationship building. I think that offers us such a powerful and exciting pathway forward. Oh, absolutely. Listening to George talk about oceanic diplomacy and Siobhan's discussion of Indigenous diplomacy, really, it changes how we approach problems. Um, and I was reminded of the conversation that we had last week with Sarah Bice and Helen Sullivan about the, the opportunities for policy change under our new government. And perhaps we can move a little bit from a paradigm of a winner and loser model to, to a paradigm where policy intervention includes humility and includes listening and understanding uh, in a way that actually makes the world better for everybody involved. What an interesting paradigm shift. I think that's right, Anna Greta. And look, the reality of policymaking and decision-making is that not everyone is going to get everything they want all the time. But that framing of winners and losers puts us into such a confrontational space and it, it, it really undermines the possibility for addressing policy challenges in a way that's about co-constructing knowledge, about listening and about sharing. So I think, you know, just, just shifting away from that really binary framing of win- winners and losers to a much more nuanced understanding of, of policy and a much more inclusive way of thinking about how we design and implement policy is really fundamentally important. Perhaps that's another way for us to put value caring at the centre of a policy framework where we can see that, that in fact, there's advantages for everybody out of the choices that we make. I think that's exactly right. And where the policy choices have not been what some wanted, how do we extend care to those communities, to those groups, to those individuals, so that not getting what we had hoped for from policy doesn't mean that we feel abandoned and and left behind? How do we restructure our whole decision-making process so that everyone feels listened to, included and cared for, even if we don't all get exactly what we want all the time? Mm. Sharon, I feel like the window is opening, like the possibilities for change. And I know that in the months and in the years ahead that there will be policy disappointments and there'll be policy challenges that we haven't perhaps even begun to imagine, uh, that that we don't have a panacea for the policy challenges that are in front of us. But I do think the discourse is changing and that is a remarkable opportunity. It certainly is. And I am so excited when I hear the word care being used by our political leaders in a way that it hasn't been in the past. And, you know, I was I was at a symposium yesterday in Melbourne around, you know, policies to support vulnerable young people or young people at risk. And that idea of care was absolutely central. And it was being talked about not in a way that was a hope for a distant future, but in a way that suddenly felt very, very real. So I think we we are seeing a real sea change. Um, I think we do need to be a, a little cautious in our optimism. As I said last week, I think the, the new government has a long road ahead. Uh, it has significant challenges and not every policy decision is, is going to be liked by everyone. But the space opening up the conversation is so exciting. 
Absolutely. So we're very much looking forward to the weeks ahead. Um, Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net. You can find out more information about the podcast and about our previous episodes on that website. George has published on Policy Forum on Oceanic Diplomacy, and we will leave a link to that article in the series around that on on our uh, website. We are, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If you're interested in our degree programs and short courses, you can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been a great discussion and we love hearing feedback from our audience about the the topics that we talk about and the way in which we approach this. You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net, or you can join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group and you'll be part of a robust discussion there. But for me, Anna Greta Hunter, I look forward to continuing this conversation next week. And for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.